Hello and welcome to the Endurance Coach Podcast. My name is Mark Laithwaite and I'm here today with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and also with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be telling you what's new in the world of endurance sports. We're going to have some amazing guests on the show and we'll be discussing how you can reach your true potential on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Endurance Podcast. Uh, not, we're doing quite well. It's only just over a week since we did the last one, which is a, must be a record for us. And I'm very pleased to say that it is definitely not autumnal today. The sun in Wigan is shining very bright. Could be like up to 22, 23 degrees today. It's tropical here. Uh, Ian, is it good where you are? Exactly the same here in sunny Birmingham, yeah, we're uh, our September sun out, it's due to be 25, 26 degrees today, so yeah, looking forward to that. And moving even further south, Mike? Yeah, hat-trick today, we've got exactly the same, absolutely glorious. We ain't going to get many of these days now, are we? These are the days where you've got to, if you're in work, you're looking outside thinking, ah, oh, it'll be raining at the weekend when I'm going out running or biking, you always want to pull a sickie, don't you? Pull your sick voice on and phone the air. Uh, on your employer and get out on the bank. That's what you need to do. Um, well, we have got a great show today because we've got Alex Stainforth. Uh, Alex Stainforth is coming on. He's going to talk about his challenge doing the uh, the three peaks, Ben Nevis, Scarfell and Snowden and running the distance in between. So that's going to be an absolutely fantastic episode. But before we uh, get Alex on the show, we have now this tradition, which is tweets of the week which has now become a legendary, well, legendary between the three of us, really, isn't it? You know, we like it. And if we like it, it's staying. And Tweets of the Week is very simple. We have 60 seconds uh, to uh, go through the last few tweets that you've put out this week and explain those tweets. And you have to try and do it bang on 60 seconds. That is the challenge to do it bang on 60 seconds. Uh, so far, Mike is by far a superior skill master at this and has been nailing it within one or two seconds. Uh, Ian can go off at all sorts of tangents, and I've been doing it, and it's been nearly lasting an hour sometimes. So, yeah, anything could go right or wrong here. So I think we're going to – let's let's uh, let's go to the expert first who's going to show it how it's done. We're going to come to Mike. So, uh, Mike, we're going to go tweets of the week, your last three or four tweets. I'm looking at my, you're not going to stop watching, have you, mate? You're not cheating. Oh, hands up. That's no. not how you manage it so well each week. No. Oh, I've been practicing getting finished in 60 seconds for about 25 years. So, in- <laughs> that internal. This is the only time it's ever been a positive. <laughs> okay, I'm going to count you down because every second counts here with your uh, accuracy levels. So, steady. Three, two, one, away you go. So this week I've got two retweets and one of my own. The one of my own was asking whether people train with music or without music or whether they listen to podcasts or audiobooks. Um, Huge cross-section in answers, but the take-home from that was it was shocking to see what some people listen to. You cannot guess what (laughs) some people listen to based on on their public personas. Um, Then there was the whole fuss in and around the uh, Diamond League commentary about physiques with some pacemakers, followed and took part in a thread with Cara Goucher and some of the other things regarding on the need or lack of need to comment on physiques, the possible repercussions to do with eating disorders and female perceptions. Finally, last couple of days, it was the Bardet crash and the whole attitude within cycling to do with head injury assessments and some of the within cycling attitudes to we can't really check them let's just let them crack on 
Have you, are you, have you got a watch there? Because this is getting too suspicious now. No watch. No watch. I might have practised it before we started, but I don't have a watch now. Yeah. 61 seconds. 61 seconds. That's a... That's your best score so far. I'll be honest, if it was 60, I would have said 61 because I just would have been, you know, would have been fuming. <laughs> but yeah, interesting. Yeah, I saw that those tweets and um uh yeah, the one about uh, body image. I mean, oh god. Yeah, I know that sometimes you think like uh, with commentators are just trying to think of something to say, but I mean, really, just <laughs> it was uh it was one of the worst things I've seen this week, I think, and just um, probably not realising again, you know, how much impact things have when you said to, you know, thousands, millions of people listening in, just the importance of, of saying the right things. But yeah, that was possibly one of the worst things I saw on Twitter this week. So again, it just highlights now that we have a world where there's a platform for people to scrutinise it, but to comment yeah. on it as well. So, yeah. You know, in, in a, whatever mistakes he made, yeah, such a tough job these days to be a commentator on something because your margin of error is zero anymore. Yeah, yeah. You say there is a need for them to continually just say stuff. Yeah, yeah. Opening, that opening part, you know, two hundred meters into to whatever middle distance event it was. Now I can't remember, but you just find there's nothing happening in the race. Yeah, something to say, but yeah, it was. A, it's an interesting one, and and then there was a. There was the offshoot comments then about um, something when they went off on a tangent about the equipment they wear, the clothes they wear, and um, all, yeah, it was it was really it got it got quite ugly in some threads on Twitter. Yeah, Caragouch thread, wasn't it? Where it's, yeah, people were basically saying, well, if people wear those outfits, then they, they almost deserve those comments, which is just ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Mm, okay, well, uh, Ian, mm. stretch or anything, or you limbered up? What's that, sorry? Stretch, you, any practice? Any stretching or pre-routine? You know, oh, pre yeah. You okay? Yeah, I've been training for this all weekend. Okay, so focus, okay? Three, two, one, away you go. Okay, my um, my first tweet yeah was uh, an article in the Guardian actually a retweet an article from the Guardian about Killian Johnny. Um, really interesting article talking about his sort of rise to fame, but also got into some of the discussions around whether he actually enjoys all the media stuff and whether he sees himself as an influencer, which he didn't he didn't like to think of him in those terms. But also he's sort of less interested in the um, competitive element now and just wants to get back to sport for, for itself. So that's really interesting. There's another, uh, there's an Alex Hutchinson one talking about altitude and the way in which pe people respond differently. So it's always assumed there was responders and non-responders. But what this study had shown was that actually people differ each time they go to um, altitude. And sometimes you might be a responder, other times you might not. Uh, and then the third one was um, actually... Uh, a video of Damien Hall and his recent FKT um, by Innovate uh, and gave some of the real reality of uh, big FKT events because he's nodding off and falling asleep in the car and having to sort of get himself back out there again. That's me. Miles off. Miles off. Miles 70 off, yeah. seconds. 75 seconds. Not even close. Not even close. Close for me. I'm getting his phone out here for a stopwatch. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I need to cover my screen now so I can't see. <laughs> I'm waiting for the countdown. Okay. Two, one, go. Okay, so first of all, uh, Hell Valley Triathlon, uh, which is a, a great event up in the northwest, and as you would expect, it finishes by running up and down Hell Valley. Haven't done this event for many, many years, maybe 15 years. But there was a long, long time ago when I actually finished second to Alistair Brownlee. And uh, I went back and raced last weekend, had an absolutely fantastic time. Alistair Brownlee was racing there, but sadly was nowhere near second place and nowhere near Alistair Brownlee. But it was a great race. My second one is, um, uh, was we've got a new pup called Dibber. And uh, I put a video on a classic uh, uh, 
kind of social media favourite of the pup lying on top of next door's dog, both of them fast asleep snoring. That will always be a winner on social media. And finally, our charity work, um, our Epic Events and Lakeland 100 charity, we are funding um, a Tri Kids, which is going into primary schools all around the Northwest and delivering triathlon activities, triathlon days for free to primary schools. And we are starting next week. We are COVID secure. If you're a primary school in the Northwest and you want us to come to you for free, then reply to my tweet and we will come and see you. Done. What do you think? I, I think it's going to be nowhere near. That's what I think. But I've just given up on it, to be honest. That is correct. Five seconds. 75. You're trying to make me look good. Yeah. You were 30 something for the first one. I'll be honest. I actually, um, I actually thought it would be a lot more than 75 seconds. No, no, I always start off well meaning. So I'll start off trying 60. And then half, how many seconds? At 50 seconds in, you just started your third. I thought, oh, he's going to nail this with a really short, sharp one. <laughs> no, I was waiting for you to drop links in and everything at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, to be honest, I, I do start off with the best intentions of hitting 60 seconds, and then I just think, do you know what? Sack it. Just maximise your airtime. That's what I do. In fairness well, to you, what the I, listeners don't. In fairness to you, what the listeners don't see. In through your tweets about 10 seconds before we start recording it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's not a bad effort, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. As I've got old, as I've got old, I am just forgetting what happened yesterday. To be honest. So I have got to start looking at Twitter and go, what did I say yesterday? Yeah, I have to go through them. Can't remember what happened 20 minutes ago. Never mind, last uh, two days ago. The Hell uh, Bellin Try one was an interesting one, wasn't it? Just to pick up on uh, Ali Brownlee. What did you think to his um, competing in World Try Final one day and then turning around to Hell Bellin the next? Yeah, so uh, as I understand, what actually happened is he, because um, there'd been no, you know, no pro, or not many pro races around, he um, he somehow spoke to Rob Wilkins, who, who from Tryhard, who organises Hellbell in other events. Uh, they're quite northeast based Tryhard, but they organise um, Hellbell in as well. And he spoke to Rob and said, like, you know, we, we'll get a, a crew of pros coming up. And um, you know, there were some really good female pros went and male pros. And then I think Alistair Brown had spoke to the PTO, this newly formed pro professional triathlon organisation or professional triathletes organisation which, um, you know, supports as the interests of all the, the professional triathletes. And uh, they put quite a bit. I heard it was like £12,000 prize money, if that's right. And then the, the ladies set off. So the female pros set off 28 minutes in front of the male pros. And then after the male pros all, all got out of the water, the age groupers went in. And I presume that, I just presume that's based on that maybe the female course record is 28 minutes slower than the male course record. And I heard that the money was up for grabs in terms of the, if the, you know, if it was a, if the, the female pro winner was the first one to cross the line. Oh, cross the line, yes. You know, so so like a really good format, and it was, um, yeah, and uh, it was um, that like Lucy Gossage was there, and uh, you know a few of the uh, the pros, and it was it was really good, really good. A lot of kind of um, chat on social media about it, and it was uh, there was quite a few people spectating, albeit socially distanced and stuff. So it was just nice. And so I've not done anything anyway for two years now after the operation I had last year. And Hell in Try, not done it. You should go. It's a bucket list race, really, because it's a kind of race you go for the day out, you know. And I think if people have not done it before on the run, they're in. They're quite shocked by it's a proper mountain run to the summit of Hell Um And it's just yeah, it's just a great course. I really like it. Great course. Had a great day out. So yeah, very glad I went. But I am um, I am a bit knackered now as a consequence of doing it. Yeah, <laughs> really interesting. Um, we we contacted Lucy before, and we were going to get her on the show. We'll have to chase that up because it's interesting following now her attitude to some of these events and races she's doing. Now she's retired, so to speak. Yeah. Seems to have found a real nice balance of just going along and having fun, but but still taking it semi seriously without feeling the pressures of being who she was. So, um, yeah, I saw a little bit of that on social media. Yeah. That'd be a really interesting topic to get into, wouldn't it? Yeah. Lucy. <laughs> what happened then? <laughs> uh, there was um, uh, her and uh, Nikki Bartlett were having a bit of a, yeah. a, a smackdown, I think, on, on Twitter 
and saying how they were going to how they were going to smash each other and all that stuff. So it was it was good, I think. And I think like we, we've said this before, haven't we, in podcasts that this year is not the year to be worried about smashing PBs. It's a year, really, if anything, if you can't just go and compete for the sake of enjoying it and the fact you're lucky enough to be taking part, then what year can you ever do that? You know, and I think I, I yeah, I really felt that that was that was what was happening at Hellvale, and people were going and just lucky to be there and in the mountains and beautiful surroundings. But yeah, the point Ian made as well, which is an important one, is that um, um, Alastair Brown had raced the day before at the World uh, World Championships in Hamburg, in about I think it was four o'clock on the Saturday afternoon, then got a got a plane home and flew straight, uh, drove straight to the lakes and got there at like midnight or something, then got up to win Hellvale in the next day. So um, logistically, I think that was as impressive as it was physically to be able yeah. to make that journey at the moment. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I heard he had to charter a plane or something. So uh, <laughs> yeah, but fair dues as well because he'd said to Rob, "Look, I'm going to come to Helvellyn and I'll come and support it." And he could have quite easily said, "Look, I'm sorry, I'm at WTC Hamburg. It's not going to happen." But he, you know, he upheld the commitment and got on a plane and flew straight to, back to the UK. So fair play to him. And then his prize money um, that he won, it, uh, half of it he gave to charity and half of it he gave to the pros, the other pros who were competing. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, I know he, was, he wasn't in the lead off the bike, was he? He was still chasing off the bike. But by the, by the summit of Helvellyn, he was in the lead. I think the two of them were together. Oh, with the with the sorry, with the female first female. Yeah, with the female. Yeah. Yeah. In in the male, I think the first two males came off the bike yeah. together. They but yes, together. I presume he was the female until until he caught her on the run. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, all great. Cool. So we're going to dial in Alex Stainforth now, aren't we? So um, as our guest on the show. So um, right, let's just give him a ring and see if he's there. So I am very pleased to welcome to the show today, Alex Stainforth, who's come on the show to talk to us about his uh, challenge running the, uh, well, some of you may have done the three peaks before, the highest three peaks in, in uh, Scotland, England and Wales with Ben Nevis, Scarfell and Snowdon. A lot of people have been on buses or driven between, but imagine running the full distance between each of those as well. So welcome to the show, Alex. Uh, great to see you here. Are you recovering well? Hi guys. Yeah, it's um, it's still fairly recent. I've completed it just over two weeks ago, um, so it's going to be a bit of a slow process. I think physically, don't feel too bad. You know, my knees and tendons are still a bit unhappy, um, but considering what I put them through, I fared quite lightly. It's more of the kind of mental process now and that kind of post challenge come down. You know, um, it's still trying to process that, and uh, I've not really had the, the kind of high. I've just had this kind of flatness and lots of motivation so I'm I'm just trying to work my way through that at the moment. Do you want to just first of all Alex just explain a little bit about the challenge that you took on you know why you did it and and you know just a little bit more about the challenge for the people that are listening. Sure so I yeah I decided to do things a bit differently um I mean in so when I was 16 uh, 2011 I did the national free peaks in the normal way you know where I drove in between the peaks uh, and that was my biggest challenge at the time but this time I decided, you know, you know, you know, you know, to actually do it all on foot. So, you know, climbing Ben Nevis, Scarborough Pike and Snowden, but running the entire distance, which is about 452 miles in total, um, averaging up to 50 miles a day. And uh, I was able to do that in, you know, in nine and a half days. So um, probably the, the biggest challenge I've taken on, really. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was quite a journey, you know, from being in the high mountains to miles of tarmac and everything in between. So, uh, yeah, can't quite believe I actually managed it, to be honest. Fantastic. Well, we've got lots of questions for you today. Um, now I'm going to hand over to Ian, who's going to uh, uh, start our interview process off, because Ian is our resident ultra runner. So um, over to Ian. Thanks, Mark. And, yeah, hi, Alex. Uh, welcome to the show. Yeah. So uh, as Mark mentioned there, we're uh, obviously because it's your most recent challenge, um, we're particularly interested in the three peaks challenge but i think for the listeners and uh, and for the three of us as well it'd be really interesting to hear a little bit about some of your past challenges as well and also what sort of brought you to this point of um of taking on this most recent challenge because I, I understand that uh, in the past you've uh, been involved in two everest attempts and also took on another challenge the, the 100 country top so it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about those but 
also, I, I think what uh, sort of combines all of these uh, challenges is probably the, uh, the charity work that you do or the charity that you've uh, created. So maybe it'd be a good place to start if you just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, yeah, I guess that's where to start, really. Um, it's been quite a busy few years. Um, yeah, so earlier this year, you know, I started charity Mind Over Mountains, which is all based on restoring our mental health, you know, in outdoor experiences. And it's so much more than just being on walks in the hills, you know, because it would be great if things were that easy. But it's actually combining that, you know, the outdoor challenge with actually professional support. So it's coaching, it's mindfulness, it's meditation, it's inspirational speakers, you know, um, you know, you know, you know, and just having that kind of um, safe and confidential space for people to talk, to walk and talk uh, in a group of like-minded people, you know, and there's a counsellor there as well. But, you know, if, if people have more, you know, you know, you know, the thing is, it's just a kind of, um, you know, obviously, you know, you know, so we're actually able to, you know, it's quite a broad support. You know, there's people there who, you know, are, uh, not on the events who. Um, you know, who just need a bit of a breakaway, you know, that they've dealt with a lot of stress and anxiety. And there's some people who have, you know, quite a serious, you know, quite some, you know, an advantage mental health issue. And so it's a real broad range, but basically um, it's just trying to make these things, you know, accessible because I found that being outside and being active has been the most powerful tool in managing my mental health. And it's been, you know, um, I think for me, especially the last sort of few months, it's been a real savior. And I realise not everybody's so lucky, so we're just trying to make these experiences more accessible. Normally, it's an overnight event um, in the hills, normally in the lakes or the peak districts. Um, so this year, we're trying to, you know, adapt and and do that on kind of a one-day program and do all the virtual stuff instead. So this year's brought its own challenges, but um, it's really exciting to be able to actually see the difference being made. Oh, that sounds really interesting. So it's um it's sort of taking existing therapies and uh, and sort of support mechanisms, but incorporating them with sort of a, the outdoor environment, which is known to be sort of have positive effects for the uh, for mental health anyway. So sure. where did the idea come from for that? Was that was that your idea? Kind of. It kind of started two years ago as an event where I was invited as an ambassador. Just they were interested in doing something on the power of hill walking for mental health and. I did a challenge in 2017 um, where I climbed, well, kind of walked, ran, cycled and kayaked uh, 5,000 miles in 72 days for the highest points of all 100 counties in the UK. And that one was all about actually fundraising for mental health for a charity called uh, Young Minds. Because I think I've realised through my own experiences that it took me longer to get the help I needed um, than it did to actually cycle, walk and run 5,000 miles, which is actually quite staggering. And it was more about trying to fill that gap in support. Um, and so on, off the back of that, they had that idea for an event. And I wanted to make it more than just, you know, a walking weekend. So so I guess I brought in Chris, you know, who's been my first mentor and coach for about the last sort of eight, nine years. And wanted to bring in all the kind of holistic benefits as well. And we kind of merged those two together. We did an event in the lakes, really inspired by it, uh, did another event last year and this year we wanted to actually start it you know as a charity so we're able to support more people okay so it's just been so it's been running around two years and you're still growing and looking to expand uh, yeah. in the world. it's and, um, early days for us and and you know um again we want to be in every national park you know in england and wales by 2023 so you know we want to get this as widespread as possible but it's kind of become um, a passion project and now feels like a full-time job but you know all my challenges now will be you know you know are all in support of that um which is nice it's nice to to, to have a more personal cause there as well yeah because your challenges predated the charity then in that case because was it 2014 and 15 you were on everest yeah so i've kind of started in the mountains you know i've ran probably for the last eight nine years um just as a kind of a daily way to you know release stress and just to get that release and it's always been a really important part of my everyday life and health but um in terms of big challenges i yeah i had this kind of everest goal when i was 14 and i guess it was a way of overcoming my own personal challenges at school you know the epilepsy the stammering being bullied anxiety and panic attacks and 
I guess over four years, I put the steps in place, climbing in the Alps in Scotland in the Himalayas, and um, eventually actually went to Everest for the first time in 2014 uh, at 18. And I guess all the challenges I've done have always been for a course because it just makes them so much more, you know, important and meaningful. Um, and then that was fundraising for conservation and cancer. When I went back in 2015, that was actually uh, fundraising for you know for the people in Nepal which actually ended up being quite important because uh, that year was when the earthquake hit and 9,000 people died and uh, we were obviously stuck on the mountain when all this kicked off um, but since then it's been more based on mental health because I've just realized that it's probably the biggest challenge that, that I've had to face and many people are facing. Yeah I think obviously really important causes but a range of different causes that you've obviously um took these challenges on for uh, and then there's another one as well that the 100 country tops as well so that was that after Everest the 2017 yeah that was about three years ago that was something very different when I'd kind of realized the big mountains weren't for me I'm not a mountaineer you know I'm I'm not a climber I just found my challenges in the mountains and I uh, wanted to do something close to home enjoy some of the you know the, you know, the home adventures that most of us don't really you know actually realize are there you know we have so much so close to us that we kind of you know don't appreciate um so that was a way to to explore that while also raising awareness close to home and at the time was probably my biggest challenge and um it, it was like my whole new everest really and that sent me on this different path to doing adventures in the uk and um i'm still kind of in that yeah, on that same path really and if we sort of move on to the most recent event then, the Three Peaks, it was a kind of challenge in itself with the uh, the global pandemic in actually getting to the start line, wasn't it? You had a bit of a, a roller coaster. So do you want to tell us yeah. a bit? Because the, the plan was actually to, to take this on early in the year, wasn't it? Yeah, haven't we all? I mean, what a year to be a an athlete, crikey. Um, it was meant to happen in May. I mean, I had the goal uh, kind of in mind from the end of last year and was sort of working towards starting in May. Um, but I had a couple of injuries, so in some ways, when when everything kind of shut down, I was kind of grateful that I had more time and I had that kind of purpose through lockdown. Um, I felt very grateful that I could obviously train the hills from a front door, um, and obviously ran for, ran just to cope really. Um, but then, then yeah, I mean, I think just that constant kind of uncertainty, you know, not knowing when I could do it and the kind of end goal, that kind of actually finish line being pushed further and further away, it was. Yeah, it was an emotional roller coaster. I mean, I, I was lucky in some ways because it wasn't like I trained for an event that had been cancelled. You know, I, I set the date. I was in control of that. And um, that was that was good to kind of stay motivated. But uh, it's one of those things like we're dealing with so much uncertainty. We've had to do things differently. Um, you've had to kind of enjoy the process. And then just before I was due to start, I then sprained my ankle. So it got to the point when I just wanted to get the thing done. You know, my mental psyche had been dragged out for so long that it was wearing really thin. And yeah, I just had to kind of throw myself in the deep end and go for it. Otherwise, you know, we're, we're, with all the uncertainty in the world right now, I may never have had the chance. It could have shut down again. Um, but it was so good to get back out there. And it's been so good to see all the things that people have been doing during this time. It's been the, the season of fastest snow times and, I was watching all this thinking, who on earth am I to be doing this? I mean, like, what on earth am I thinking? Um, but it's been a really inspiring year as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a one-off, well, hopefully a one-off opportunity to see what some of the uh, the world's best athletes can do and dedicate themselves to these uh, FKTs because a, a number of interviews I've had with some of the athletes that have been successful have said, you know, if it had been a normal year, I would have been going to the events that my sponsors want me to to go to and I wouldn't be taking this on so uh, I think that's definitely been one of the, the positives at least for us from the uh, from the endurance community that have seen that um so if we if we move on to the actual event itself so because of those injuries I assume you weren't in like you were like your confidence wasn't at the highest level going in but you were just keen to get started anyway I guess at that point yeah I mean it, people were saying to me you know why not wait why not push it back and I'm very glad I didn't because I think I think we all know that when you're injured, you're you're focused on it. You can't ignore it. And almost you can imagine it or make it worse in your head because um, you sat there kind of on that false start. And it's, it's just a horrible process. Um, 
the training wise had gone pretty well. I mean, I'd done quite a lot of long runs, you know, quite a lot, a lot of mileage in the hills. I mean, you're always going to doubt whether you've done enough um, because I've always kind of ran 5k up to marathon uh, on road and been kind of more of kind of a faster runner rather than, you know, you know, like ultra runner. I knew I'd done a lot of endurance challenges on the bike and in the mountains, which was gave me a lot of confidence of my ability. But this again was, was just different. Um, so I, to be honest, I'd never doubted myself as much before a challenge like I did with this. Just, I just started to feel that, you know, my gut wasn't quite convinced that something wasn't right, that things are working against me. And I think this year we've been bombarded with so much fear that we've just become kind of hypervigilant. And, and yeah, my confidence really was at rock bottom. Um, I almost didn't visualize success because I didn't think it was going to happen. I didn't want to almost build myself up for another disappointment. Um, so I think I just wanted to get it done with really, uh, which is a shame because I, I stopped enjoying the process towards the end. I just wanted to get out there and do it in any form I could. Um, so I think when the ankle went, I mean, it was a week before I was due to start, which is just typical. Um, and I'd sprained my ankle on week one of the actual training plan in November. So that kind of was a nice ending to it really. Um, but in some ways these things happen for, you know, some, some sort of reason that we can't see at the time. Um, it let me taper properly. It meant actually mine of the mountains actually, you know, you know, actually got our status as a charity um, a week before I eventually started. So that was a nice bonus. And I avoided two heat waves. So you kind of have to think it will probably work out for some reason. Um, and I was debating, you know, do I hold back longer? Cause I saw three physios and they all said the ankle was good to go. You know, it was quite mild. Um, if I waited any longer, I was going to lose fitness. I was going to lose that mental psyche. So I just went for it. And um, I'm very glad I did because the ankle in the end ended up being no issue at all. It was everything else that went instead. It's amazing how often that's the case, isn't it? When you think you've got a weakness going in and that holds up and then the weak point ends up being somewhere else. So you just end up uh, suffering with other ailments. It's quite interesting what you said in terms of you felt as though you didn't have that pressure on you because you could decide when the start point was. But it kind of the counter to that is you have to make that decision when to go, don't you? Because I think if you went to the start line of many sort of hundred mile races, you said to people, "Do you want to delay half an hour? Do you want to delay an hour?" I think a fair few people would, would take the opportunity. But, um, whereas it's the start line, and they don't have any choice when that gun goes; they've got to start. So it takes that decision making away from them. So it must have been quite tough for you and it, especially when you you have the issue of the ankle to, to say no come on let's just let's get this started but you felt good once that happened then so once you once you started moving you, you were pleased to be getting some ground on the repeat yeah i mean as you say having to make the decision myself was the hardest bit i deliberated and deliberated weighing up the pros and cons and there's no perfect time otherwise we'd never start you know um I think the hardest part is always starting and there was just this relief when I got on the train to Scotland. There was then this second fear and I thought, hang on a minute, this train from Glasgow to Fort William is about four hours. I'm going to be running this in two days. <laughs> um, and then there is that dread of thinking, crikey, I've put myself out there. I'm about to, you know, blow up in front of everybody. Um, but actually starting the watch and going up the Ben Nevis was just, the relief was amazing. And, uh, and yeah, straight away, I'm fixated on the ankle, what's going to happen. I kind of realized that the joint was so stiff that I couldn't kind of flex it that well. So I had to kind of adapt, kind of adopt how I ran and how I moved. Um, but luckily the ankle then didn't, didn't actually bother me for the, the you know, the entire challenge. Um, so it's quite remarkable what the body can do. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that that's one of the things I take from any reading I do around these sort of challenges where people are doing things for days and weeks on end is the amount of times that you look as though there's just no way someone can carry on and actually when they do the body responds which is uh but a lot of people obviously can't take themselves past that point but, but when people do it's amazing how the body can uh, cope with that so that might be something mike wants to comment on later because i'm really interested in uh in sort of the physiology and the physical nature of that um so obviously, as we mentioned, you, you've taken on some quite big challenges in the past and overcome some of the similar sort of doubts that you were experiencing here. So what were some of the sort of things that you've learned from those past experiences that you took into this one that allowed you to sort of cope with the, the scale of the challenge? 
yeah interesting um I think this was very different for me because you know in training I'd ran up to four to six miles but I hadn't done that kind of multi-day running and that was my biggest fear um but what I had to remind myself is that when I did my last challenge three years ago I mean on day five I'd I'd like got quite a bad sprain in, uh, in my quad muscle on the bike and you know I was having that same kind of position where how am I going to keep going this doesn't make sense you it surely is only going to get worse but having that knowledge that actually after three weeks of quite a bit of discomfort it just disappeared and I, I knew that that was likely to be the case here as well but also I think the main thing is about breaking things down into small steps you know whether that's and again it's such a basic strategy but you know I'd break you know a 50 mile run down into okay I'll run 5k then I'll have a snack and then I'll I'll do another mile, then I'll change a song on the phone, and then I'll do another mile, and then when I get there, I see there's a tree over there, so I'll go to that, and then I'll have another snack. And just breaking these down, in, you know, in these milestones to me is has been massively important on the other challenges, but for this one especially because I was doing such a long days. But I think as well, it's being able to uh, be flexible, being able to adapt the plan, and also um, to know that how I feel right now in this moment or in you know the next hour doesn't necessarily impact what's going to happen at the end and in nine days you haven't got a lot of time to catch up you know on my last challenge I had a chest infection and then I lost a couple of days but I had 72 days to re you know to to reschedule to change the route on this there wasn't a lot of flexibility um so when I fell behind I kind of realized that you know the you know this kind of actually fastest time wasn't going to happen um but then I realized on the schedule actually there was some space to do that so I think it's just about not being too emotional, you know, or reactive, just being able to to focus on the here and the now. Um, and I think as well, you know, when you think you've given up, actually, a lot of the time, you've got to really assess, you know, the truth, assess the facts, get the help that you need. You know, I saw two sports massages who both said, OK, yeah, you're buggered, but you're good to go. <laughs> um, was I think it's getting that help and, you know, getting that help and actually you know and support along the way and also just the power of basic human connection you know when you're having that really bad moment you think you've got nothing left somebody arrives at the right time and joins you for a few miles and suddenly you're in a different world and that was the same on the last challenges so i think just flexibility and small steps i think are the key yeah some really good points there i think lots of things that have come up when talking to other people that have taken on big challenges in the past but and also advice that people can take into into one day events as well, you know, especially the, the breaking things down and trying to stay in the, the here and now. Um, I'm, I'm also interested in, um, the, so that was obviously how you've overcome some of the big challenges during, but I'm quite interested in your experiences afterwards as well, because I've noticed on social media, you've mentioned you know, some of the sort of, how you felt since and the sort of taking away the big challenge. Um, so do you want to reflect on that a little bit and how what, how you felt since? Mm. I think for me, the actual challenge was kind of broken down into three elements of success. So obviously one of them was to just to do the challenge, which itself was bonkers enough. And even today, I still don't know how my body managed it. Um, secondly, it was a fundraising. You know, I had a target of £10,000, which we smash. And then I think the third element was trying to be, you know, was trying to do it, uh, you know, in the fastest known time that was a driver for me i've always been quite kind of quite competitive i've always liked to chase times um on road marathons and things as well um so i guess I, i'd almost tick two of the boxes but there was that element of disappointment that did kind of personally um affect the kind of that end point you know when i got to the end i was so exhausted so knackered that i didn't really feel the elation or the joy or, or anything i just felt flat and I think part of that is because it hadn't sunk in. But the kind of frustrating thing is that two weeks later, it still hasn't quite sunk in. I've just had this kind of relief and flatness. Um, after nine months of planning, you know, I was hoping to be, be enjoying the, the downtime and recovery. But uh, I think because of all these false starts, I've not been able to enjoy it in the typical kind of process. Um, don't get me wrong, I'm glad it's done. I'm glad I don't have to go out and run 30 miles in the rain anymore. But uh, and I'm, I'm enjoying that, you know, I can just lie down and have my feet up and eat a lot with no guilt whatsoever. But um, I think there is that element of what's now. There's this massive void and there's lots of things else I need to do. It's a lot of work I need to catch up on. But 
it's a different element of life you know it's, it doesn't excite me it doesn't give me that kind of passion for challenge and uh, I think as well it's you know it's a very liberating feeling now to think that crikey well whenever I doubt myself like that again I'm going to have this experience as a reference point um, which is actually quite exciting but it's also thinking crikey what on earth can I do to top this um, I've kind of enjoyed you know the post challenge buzz you know all the social media has been crazy it got mentioned on the uh, lag bible so that's my running career complete um, but actually then suddenly all that dies down and then it's very quiet again um, I've been very used to this with other challenges but what I've done then is I've thrown myself into training for another one and because and my you know all my tendons are still quite bad I had well, when I stopped I had actually cellulitis because my ankles were so swollen and red because um, I've not been able to physically do that um, I've just had to find new ways to process it and and yeah it's been very very flat but uh, I know from experience that I've just got to sit it out and and have things to look forward to yeah no I think um, that that sort of slightly um, depressed mood following or it obviously could be quite extreme for some people following a big event is something that we can all probably relate to but the bigger the challenge probably the, the bigger it, the more it feels you know flat following but mm. I, I wonder in this case because of the such an extended build-up to it that has been part of your life for like over a year that probably just exaggerates in this case and I wonder if that's the case where the longer you've been preparing for something, the harder it is for it to not be a regular part of everyday um, life, other than talking yeah. about it, I guess, like, like we are now. Yeah, there were, I think as well, because it was only nine days, I didn't really get a chance to get into actually visualising it or that I didn't really get time to get in, into actually kind of, oh, this is happening now. You know, on the last challenge, I was on the bike for two months. I had a lot of time to think about what it was going to feel like when I finished and what I was looking forward to afterwards. And I was just desperate to get to the end. But I kind of got into this routine of just running all day that I just kind of zoned out and didn't really imagine it. I didn't believe I was going to get there. Every single day I had a different injury or setback or something that I thought was going to finish it off. Um, and it all kind of went too fast. You know, I didn't have time to start thinking, right, what's it going to be like when I get there? Um, which is kind of a shame, you know, because so much has gone into it. But, but you know, I'd much rather live life in the peaks and troughs than just be flat all the time. So, absolutely, I guess that that's a really good thing, to sort of, for people to keep in mind. I guess that reflects on um, some of the scale of your past challenges. When you say it's only nine days, it's it's just a show on this. Um, so many questions that I could ask, but um, obviously the other guys want to uh, ask some questions as well. So. I'll hand over to, to Mike now so he can uh, pick up on some of the points that you've mentioned so far. Thanks, Ian. Hi, Alex. Hi, Mike. So I'm, I'm fascinated about some of the psychology of the injury stuff that was going on with yourself. The, the first thing that I was drawn to is when you mentioned about seeing three physios before the challenge. Mm. You got the green light off all of them. I'm interested in your thoughts of why you wanted to see three therapists. Yeah, I mean... It's partially because I have one up, you know, I have, you know, you know, I have one up, you know, a lot up here in Kendall. Um, there's one who I used to, work, you know, I worked with an awful lot when I was back home in Chester, where I'm from. Um, and the third one was actually a sports massage. So kind of, you know, not not the same sort of angle, but essentially I went to them for a different thing and, you know, for the same problem, but just to try and get things actually, you know, eased off. So I said, you know, you know, essentially it was trying to hit it from every angle I could and, um, it was just because of where I was at the time that I wanted three different opinions. And I think um, I have had experience with bad physios in the past, but I've now got, you know, two, you know, it's one up here and one back home that I work with well and I trust and have always got me back on my feet. Um, so it's more about kind of what I had available at the, you know, at the time. But uh, I guess to, to an extent, though, it was because I wanted to have trust that I was doing everything I possibly could to recover as fast as I could. Um, you know basically that i think yeah and i think the big the big message there you know we've got literally empirical evidence to show that that relationship that trust is almost the key key component in the relationship far outweighs the ability of the therapist sometimes it's if they know and understand and, and you like and trust each other it, it's so powerful and then so you so the, the following question to that is 
you're very astute and um, sensible in your approach to some of these challenges. What would you have done if one, two or three of those opinions had come back and you'd got a red light instead of a green light? Good question, because I, I was very lucky that I'd never had that. And I, I, I don't know, I dread to think of what I would have done because I would have been in this very difficult position. Um, when I had the first first kind of sports massage in Keswick after about day five, um, I literally couldn't run more than 10 metres. You know, it was like being whacked in the shins of a hammer. And so that was my, kind of, I was desperate for that appointment just to get it seen properly. Um, and luckily, yeah, I mean, he was used to seeing ultra runners doing daft stuff. And I think it's, it's as well as having the right type of therapist, because if I went to any of these issues, you know, with somebody who didn't run, the kind of common sense approach would be stop. But they're used to dealing with people who kind of more about keeping them going rather than thinking about the long term. Um, and I think if it was somebody that I trusted, I would have I would have made the call. You know, I had a lot of people kind of saying to me, um, you know, should you really, you know, be doing this? You know, should you risk, you know, should you be, you know, should risk long term damage? And I didn't want to be in a position when I couldn't run for a few months because my mental health would suffer. Um, so I think there is that thing where we can almost consciously give the information we want to get the outcome we want to hear. Um, but I was honest as I needed to be. I just, you know, I said it as I was. And I think had they given me a different opinion, um, you know, I would have explored that as much as I could. But ultimately, yeah, I would have followed that. I would have followed that advice. Um, but that's only from coming from people who I knew and trusted. You know, I had, I did have one sponsor actually email me during the challenge saying, you know, we think you should stop. We can see you're in a lot of pain. but my mentality was, well, they're not a runner. Um, they, they don't understand this because ultra running is not conducive to taking care, I don't think. Um, it's a different mindset. And I knew that if I had medical go-ahead, then it was okay to carry on. So the treatment that you then received during the event, was that pre-planned? Was it ad hoc? Ad hoc, yeah. I, I mean, I'd wanted to get a sports massage on the way, but it was more a case of seeing how things were and what, where I had time. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think I was naive to think that I, I wouldn't have needed that. I mean, I brought a foam roller, so I was doing little bits in the evening, but um, I was finishing so late that any recovery time, it, it was just, you know, I iced my feet, I stretched off, I got my feet up the wall, um, but it was all ad hoc and very desperate. Um, my physio in Chester, she, did like a little session in a car park. She brought a bed down. She popped a, you know, I had a blister bigger than Ben Nevis. So she sorted that out. Um, and yeah, it was spontaneous, but you know, there was that much support available that I was very grateful. We are seeing now, um, not, not many, but we're starting to see some of these big ones. I know, I think it was Robbie Britton's attempt, but it was someone did a, a jog run a couple of years ago and they, had a series of therapists located geographically along the route that they could see someone every night. And then there's other ones, certainly um, uh, Ben from the 401 Challenge, who's, who's off to yeah. America to do a big challenge. I know we at Sports Injury Fix, we consulted with him about finding him a therapist to go with him for the whole trip. So I think some people are starting to, and, and you know, any. Um, elite professional team one of the first things they would recruit is that therapy team and i'm a big advocate of pushing look you we may not be elite pro, pro athletes but you're doing a big event and you should train and prepare like elites and, and, and athletes and and i'm sure there's there's plenty of therapists out there who have the experience of supporting someone mm. being involved with that is, yeah. it, is it something you think about in future would you think about trying to recruit a team member, so to speak, to come along with you if feasible? Definitely. One thing I learned is just, in the, just how much of a difference that made. If I hadn't have had that, you know, I, I don't think I would have made it. You know, from being able to, well, I spent the whole day walking because I couldn't run. The next day, you know, I ran again and I felt great. And it was amazing just what that could do. So I would definitely at least, you know, at least have it organised or pre-organised. Um, and if I could have somebody there, you know, on the journey, I would. Um, I think the biggest difference the, that I would make is having like, you know, a specific support vehicle. I had, you know, support most of the way, but it was different friends helping out with different cars and vehicles. But rather than actually having like, you know, you, you know, rather than trying to kind of book hotels and then having to the hassle of changing all and arriving late and, and all that, um, I would just have like a van that has all the stuff in that I can just jump in and stop rather than having to get somewhere to drive back and drive back there in the morning when I'm short. 
Um, and I know the guy before me had had that and I was naive enough to think I wouldn't need it. Um, but having a support vehicle was absolutely vital. And uh, I think little changes like that in, uh, in logistics, um, it saves that hour in the evening and that hour nearly makes a big difference. You know, and I think had I had that, it would have made such a difference. That consistency as well, you know, you know where everything is in the van and it's that same environment and just diving know. asleep. Yeah. Would yeah. Be great. Now, just five minutes on social media following you through the journey, you could see that there was a serious pain level going on. You were, you were struggling in points. Were you ever, what was the conversations with the therapists as far as the relationship between pain and damage? You mentioned sort of long-term stuff. Was there uh, interested on that one? There's often misconceptions about between pain and damage. How was, how was the conversations evolving around that? I think it was, you know, I always wanted to know off them kind of whether this was actually, you know, whether it was doing damage or whether it was it was just it was just sore and hurting a bit. And they sort of said to me, yeah, when this is done, you're going to have a lot of inflammation. Um, I'm probably going to have bits of tendonitis. I'm probably going to have, you know, um, you know, you know, you know, obviously, you know, a lot of swelling, bits of bits of uh, compartments, in, you know, and all sorts of, you know, and all sorts of, you know, kind of bad stuff happening. But. I sort of, I remember when I got to the one in Kendall, I sort of said, you know, is this, you know, a serious injury or can I carry on? And she said, well, yeah, I mean, obviously you've already come this way. You are, you know, your ankles are bad, but if you, if you can maintain them, um, you know, and as you can sort of tell that I wasn't, I, I wasn't kind of after an excuse to stop. I wanted her to give me the go ahead that it, it, you know, I think, I think I had age on my side as well, but she sort of said, yeah, you are doing some damage, but it's not long term. And I think that was what I needed to hear is actually I can tolerate a few weeks of kind of sore tendons. Um, you know, there was always that risk, but I was willing to take that risk. Um, you know, I had a kind of a perineal sprain as well, which actually happened when I fell down the stairs in one of the hostels on one of the mornings uh, of all places. Um, and in logic, that would have only got worse and worse. But with changing a few things and taping it and stretching it and massage, it, it was fine. Um, so yeah, it was basically the case of they were just doing what they could to keep me moving, um, rather than trying to protect me. And they knew that I was willing to take the risks of anything that happened. Okay, um, but, um, so well, sorry, but I did, they sort of said, if it does this, you know, if it changes color or this happens, that's, the time, that's the time to stop. So they did tell me that. That's such a nice example and really nice to hear that because that's something that I'm always pushing this message out is as a society, we still have this real misconception about pain equals level of damage. And we know it's not true. And context is everything. You know, if you had turned up nine months ago, the same level of pain you were in now during the challenge, then that's a fundamentally different conversation to let's manage you and get through. Now, often then where we are, um, the conflict comes is those who care about us, love us, support us in that pain and going, oh, Alex, listen, this is damage. You need to stop and, and all of this sort of stuff. They mean well, but that context of, you know, it's short-term hyper-irritability of some of these tissues, as you said, that, you know, there's an appropriate reason why these things are giving you as much chip as they are. Um, and with an appropriate period of recovery, they'll just settle down and you'll be fine moving forward. Yeah, yeah. And the thing... Unfortunate that you know, actually, you know, actually now, you know, my mum is quite used to seeing me doing this death stuff, and and you know, she wouldn't tell me. She was the one who was urging me to keep going, you know, because she knew that if I didn't, mentally I would regret it. Um, and she actually brought me some brought me some new shoes. So my feet were that swollen. Um, so I'm lucky that I didn't have people around me telling me to stop because they knew that I wouldn't unless I absolutely had to. Nice atmosphere to be in. Mm. To Ian, I've probably got another 10 questions, but conscious. Mark's going to do what he does now. He picks all the best questions that he's worked out while we were talking. So I'll fire over to Mark to shoot the, the, the knock it out of the park questions. Go in five minutes. You've not left much opportunity, have you? <laughs> That's a tweet of the week for you, five minutes. <laughs> That's it. have only got three minutes left. <laughs> No, I'm just, yeah, it's great just listening. I'm, I'm just still very fascinated with this whole thing, you know, 
people talking about COVID and there's, there's lots of chat about mental health and I, it does worry me about what's to come as well. And, and I think part of the problem with mental health, I'm sure you were, is this diagnosis of mental health, if it even exists. And it, it seems to be impacting so many people, but on a level that no one would, would diagnose it, if that's the right word. Do you understand what I mean? I think I know so many people who just aren't themselves at the moment and how it's had a big impact on people. But the um, yeah, so it does worry me for what's to come, really. And, and as athletes, I think a lot of people have... Um, you know, not be able to race or the, the, the routine's been disrupted and all those kind of things. And But I think some people also feel a bit of guilt. And we talked about this in the past because, you know, when you've got COVID and people are dying, is it really right that I'm, I'm stressed that my Ironman race might not take place or my running event might not take place? Is that really fair? When, so you, you start to question whether you should be even thinking about these things. Uh, you know, and that in itself is a is a you know an interesting conversation. But I want to just pick up on this um, uh, peaks and trough of endurance athletes because I've jokingly talked about this in the past with Lakeland Hundred. We have a thing called Plod, which is post Lakeland objective depression, and how people you know the week after they're all on Facebook and then gradually over the two week period it's like oh remember where we were last weekend and you know it drops off. But also it as well not just uh, beforehand but. We can look at the taper process. How many people feel awful in the taper? Because, you know, and, and it's that break of the routine. They're used to running so many times a week and now they're not. They feel dreadful in the taper. And then they build up and have a big event and then they stop running. They have a week off. And I, I think that only really happens to endurance athletes because they've created this routine for themselves. And now they're disrupting the routine. And... Um, you know, that's what causes a problem. So if you're not an endurance athlete, you don't have that routine. You probably don't have those peaks and troughs. And you made a really good point with it, uh, about 10 minutes ago. You said, I'd rather live on the peaks and the troughs than just to be flat all the time. You know, and I just, just yeah, just, I'm just curious about that, what your thoughts are on that, on that routine that endurance athletes create for themselves. And those peaks and troughs of events, I mean, you know, both before and after, you know, whether you've, you've got any thoughts on that. I think for me, the key is about enjoying the journey and the process rather than being so focused on the outcome, because otherwise you will always need that next fix, that next challenge, that next race. And you do a marathon and say never again. And then next thing you've entered another one. Um, and I think, yeah, it's I think there is a routine on. And as you say, I like the idea about, you know, going back to staying, you know, in that kind of, you know, in that normal prep routine, but obviously just adapting it to be post challenge and doing the same things. Um, because otherwise, you know, you will have that void and then that allows you to think about negative things and get kind of quite demotivated instead. And I think having a goal in mind has always been important for me. Uh, but during lockdown, I think it's also been a good chance to just enjoy being able to run and train for the sake of it. Yeah, um, yeah. I think sometimes we have to remind ourselves of that. And after a challenge, I've always enjoyed that loss of pressure. You know, I run and do the things that I normally couldn't do because of, you know, if I'm training for an event, I normally wouldn't run in the hills because of risks of ankles and things. Um, and then sort of I do it a week before the challenge. Um, I think routine and also processing it and taking the time to reflect before you jump into something else is really important because otherwise you, you're almost kind of grieving for it, you know, and other people around you don't care. You're still talking about it weeks later and everyone else is, is going back to normal. So I think having a plan for after the challenge is something I didn't do and something I would do in future. You know, having things to look forward to, having things you're going to do um, just as you would before, I think yeah. is something I'm definitely going to do in future. Yeah. I was surprised we ran a virtual event in July rather than the actual Lakeland 100. And I, I was surprised how many emails I had from people and I felt underqualified to read those emails about how much it meant to them. And I was very conscious then of what happened after the event of this big drop off and and luckily um the t-shirts took about three or four weeks to be delivered and people started making a joke out of it on the facebook page but what it actually did was draw out the event for about three or four weeks so it actually worked really well but yeah the process enjoying the process versus be, people being goal orientated myself you know ian and mike have talked about that many times and what i've seen uh, this year a lot of is people saying you know my race is cancelled i've just had enough for the year i'm just going to stop and restart again and, it's, you know, that goal was the one thing they were aiming for, whereas the people who are more process orientated who run or cycle or swim for the enjoyment of running, cycling or swimming have just carried on doing it. They just enjoy the process. But some people are very ultimately goal driven. Yeah. 
And, uh, and, and I actually, a, a chap who I know only last week said to me, you know, I've had enough of this year now. I just want to pack in training and I just want to uh, go out and run and cycle and enjoy myself instead. I've just had enough. And it's the training process and the data and the looking forward to races and all of that how impacts him psychologically. And that's the thing that's fatiguing him more than the physical element of it. And he said, I just want to go and run and cycle and swim for fun. And, uh, you know, like the point you've just made, they're bringing it back to if you're not enjoying the process, then how much of that can you endure before you feel that you've just had enough, you know? I mean, do, coming up to the events, are you, um, uh, do you, do you find it's more the, psycho, the, the psychological element and the stress of the event, which is wearing you down rather than the physical element? Definitely stress. Yeah. The worrying, this, the, the risk of something else happening or going wrong in the meantime, it felt I was on edge watching all the time and not having control. Uh, the physical element was fine. I mean, I was tapering and I was just trying, well, more than I wanted to, um, and yeah, the, the mind plays all sorts of games, really. So it's uh, it, it was definitely a mental game, just starting. Um, and then every, all that blows away and you realise you've been worrying about things that weren't even real. Yeah, yeah. And I'd say as a coach as well, um, for athletes, one of the key things for performance is mental health. But as soon as you say the term mental health to them, there's a stigma attached to that. It's like, well, there's nothing wrong with me, I'm fine. But mental health in its sense is just trying to reduce your stress levels, you know, getting more sleep and things like that. Because to, to, if you want to do an Ironman or an ultra race or whatever challenge you want to do, just being able to go out the door, being motivated when you get home to go out of the door rather than thinking, I just can't be bothered today. I'm too tired or whatever it may be. All of those things start with people with, with having really good mental health. And just to, just to finish, I'm just curious, you talked about meditation and stuff like that, because I think perhaps that's something that athletes don't take enough of, is just looking after themselves in those basic you know, mental health perspectives. So when they get home, they are motivated to go out and do the sessions that they need to do and wanting to take part in events. What would be your kind of overview of that if you were you know, giving people some advice aside from the physical? I mean... The mindfulness on, on the Mind of the Mountains events is more about people being in the moment and having those self-help skills. And, you know, for me, it's I'm quite good at that anyway. But I think it's, um, yeah, I think having breaks away from it, taking time away to reflect is really important, making that part of the process and part of the routine, you know, um, so that you're not always thinking about the goal, I think is, is really important. But I think having a vision in mind is something I didn't do this time, and that would have been helpful for those low moments. But uh but yeah, I mean, almost be be willing that the goal is probably going to turn out very different to how you imagine it anyway, and being being flexible in in what that looks like, and not being too rigid because then when the plan falls apart, you're going to lose lose your head, you know. Um, so I think yeah, being a but having breaks, having rests from the challenge, you know, I think is is important um, because it can become very overwhelming, and uh, and yeah, just. Just enjoy running while we can and be grateful for that because, you know, I feel I felt so grateful to be out there. You know, I had a choice to be doing that and putting myself through that pain and I won't take that for granted, really. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, that that um, with endurance challenges as well, I think sometimes it it can attract that type A person. You become all very obsessed with it and almost forget that like we were talking about with the process and enjoying doing it for the sake of doing it and being out there in the mountains you can become overly obsessed, especially in the world of social media and data analysis. And as we are now, where, where sports have gone to. And I think it can become more about that. And we sometimes lose touch with that, with that process and just, you know, doing the things that we actually love and doing them for the right reasons. So, but anyway, I know you, uh, you need to go soon. So I'm sorry. I've got lots more questions I could ask, but uh, thanks so much for coming on today. Um, it's been, a, it's been really great talking to you. And I'm hoping we can get you back in future because I'd really like to drill down more and talk about the psychology and the mental side of it. So maybe, um, you know, we can pin you down now and ask you, will you come back on for us? Sure, guys. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, there's more challenges ahead. I'm now thinking of more yeah. daft runs. So I could talk all day about the mindset. And it's always always enjoy going into that rather than just being asked the very typical typical things of, you know, what was the, what was it like? What was the pain like? I love going into these things. So thank you for giving me the chance to, to try to share that. And uh, yeah, I really hope everyone find some inspiration for it and 
and starts to actually think about what they could do because yeah. you know I'm, i i i threw myself in the deep end with nine ultra marathons in nine days and um it's amazing what what we can do really so i hope people go out there and find their own everest yeah and well done on the charity work as well and the cause that you, i think is just fantastic and i really really hope that it succeeds thank you guys thank you thanks for having me on the show today cheers guys thanks for listening to the show today if you want to follow us on twitter you can follow myself uh, via the endurance store at endurance coach you can follow mike the endurance physio at the endurance pt and you can follow dr ian Bordley at md sport x that's md sport ex uh, you can also visit our website. You can visit theendurancestore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer the Endurance Coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out sportsinjuryfix.com, where you can find a sports injury specialist near you. Speak to you soon.